following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Recently, there was a story about an Amish family who decided to take a trip to the big city. And for those who may not know much about Amish people, they live a very simple lifestyle. They don't have electricity. They don't drive cars. Um, probably not using cell phones because that's electrical. And I grew up in Ohio, and there were Amish people not too far from where we lived, maybe an hour away. And I can remember driving through Amish country, and they'd be in their horse and buggies. And you know, it was a really interesting kind of area. But this family decides to go, uh, it was a husband, wife, and a son, decide to go into the big city. And you can imagine their amazement as they're riding their horse and buggy into the big city. And they get to a hotel, and the father and son go into the hotel, and they leave Ma with the horse and buggy waiting outside. And they go into the reception, and they're checking in. And while they're waiting, they see this old lady hobbling towards these metal doors. They didn't know what an elevator was. So they're watching, and they see her push a button and wait a moment, and the doors open up, and this old lady hobbles inside, and she turns, and they see her pushing a button on the wall, and the doors close, and they're fascinated. And they wait about a minute, and the doors open up, and this beautiful young woman steps out of the elevator. And the father doesn't even look at his son. He just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Boy, go get your mother. Now, wouldn't we all like to go into an elevator and come out transformed? I know I would like to do that so I could get rid of some of the aches and pains that I have and maybe even get some hair back again. Or maybe we go in and there's buttons on the elevator, inside the elevator wall, that has Paul or Moses or Abraham or David or Ruth or Esther. Unfortunately, real-life transformation isn't quite that easy, but it isn't impossible either. Everywhere that Jesus went, he left changed lives in his wake. And today we're going to look at one of my favorite passages that also talks about transformation. If you want to follow along with me, it's John chapter 4. We'll read the first part and then we'll jump towards the uh, middle end of it. So starting in verse 1. When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink. Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? 
you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Jump down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him, because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that that this really is the Savior of the world. When I read this passage, to me it just screams missions. I know you've heard sermons on it before that may have focused on the idea of living water. But to me it just, there's so much about missions in this passage. It's a fascinating encounter. It transcends cultural and societal bounds that to fully understand and grasp this exchange between Jesus and the woman, we really need to go back and dig in to the history and the culture that impacted the Jews and the Samaritans. So for the casual reader of the Bible, which that's not most of us here, may not fully appreciate, like I said, the the depth and significance of this conversation. In today's society, conversations between men and women are commonplace. We don't think anything of it. And almost certainly those conversations do not break any societal norms. However, in the first century, that was not the case. 
is especially true of this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It is fair to say that the societal frame that governs encounters between male and female in the ancient Mediterranean world is effectively rent asunder by this meeting at the well. Rabbis were forget, forbidden to greet a woman in public. A rabbi could not even speak to his wife, daughter, or sister in public. There were Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street and often walked into walls and houses. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public was the end of his reputation. On top of that, this woman had a notorious character. No decent man, let alone a rabbi, would have been seen with her, would have been seen in her company, or even talking with her. Yet Jesus engaged in conversation with this woman. On both sides of the Samaritan Jewish equation, there was strong animosity and distrust. Look at the Jewish view on Samaritan people, and I'll look at the Samaritan view on Jews, and also the temple in Jerusalem. There is great historical significance in Samaria. Samaria is steeped in Old Testament history. Sychar is just east of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebel, near the city of Shechem. The well here is none other than Jacob's well. The well itself is over 100 feet deep and still exists to this day. You couldn't just go there and dip a cup in the water. You had had a means to draw the water from deep down. It was at this location that Moses read the law to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 11.29. When the Lord our God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim the blessing at Mount Gerizim and the curse at Mount Ebel. In Deuteronomy 27.12, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes will stand on Mount Ebel to deliver the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. In Judges 9.37, Mount Gerizim, in Hebrew, is translated the center of the land. In the Septuagint, it's called the navel of the earth. It had great significance to the people who lived there. The Samaritans also built a temple for their sacrifice here. And John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean king, destroyed this temple in 128 B.C. To this day, the Samaritans still conduct annual celebrations on Mount Gerizim. The land itself was bought by Jacob in Genesis 33, 18-19. After Jacob, Jacob came from Paddan Aram. He arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field <clears throat> where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hammer, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. Jacob, on his deathbed, had given the land to Joseph, Genesis 48:22. <coughs> Over and above what I am giving your brothers, I am giving you the one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and bow. And after Joseph's death in Egypt, his body was taken back and buried here. Joshua 24:32. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob 
it purchased from the sons of Hammer. Shechem's father for 100 pieces of silver. It was an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. So we see there's great history in this one area of land where this encounter is taking place. And then we have the Jewish view on Samaritans, which was not very favorable. <clears throat> Thank you. The start of the troubles between the Jews and the Samaritans goes back into Old Testament times and the split of the Jewish people into the northern and southern kingdoms. The Assyrians were wrecking havoc on the nations around them by the middle of the 8th century B.C. And Tiglath-Pelesar assumed the Assyrian throne in 745 B.C. And the northern kingdom asked for help from him in 733. Subsequently, they were subjugated and invaded. The capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, did not fall into the year 721 B.C. And at that point, many of the Israelites were taken into captivity and other peoples were settled there, including Babylonians. During the Assyrian occupation, they brought in people from a total of five different nations. It was due to this resettling of foreign captives that the remaining Jewish people eventually began to intermarry with them and even adopt some of their cultural and religious practices. We see this in 2 Kings 17, 5 and 6. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala and by the Habor, Gozan's river, and the cities of the Medes. Now bear with me as we have a long passage that kind of lays out more of what has taken place before. Second Kings 17.24-41 Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and settled them in place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. When they first lived there, they did not fear Yahweh. So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The settlers spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations that you have deported in place in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them that are killing them, because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria issued a command, Send back one of the priests you deported, have him go and live there so they can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. So one of the priests came, one of the priests they had deported came and lived in Bethel. And he began to teach them how they should fear Yahweh. But the people of each nation were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines at the high places that the people of Samaria had made. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nargal. The men of Hamath made Eshima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of the Sephirvaim. They feared the Lord, but they also appointed from their number priests to serve them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, but they also worshipped their own gods, according to the customs of the nations where they had been deported from. They are still practicing the former customs to this day. None of them fear the Lord or observe their statutes and ordinances. 
the laws and commandments the Lord commanded the descendants of Jacob. He had renamed him Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, Do not fear other gods. Do not bow down to them. Do not serve them. Do not sacrifice to them. Instead, fear the Lord, who brought you from the land of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm. You are, to, you are to bow down to him and you are to sacrifice to him. You are to be careful always to observe the statutes, the ordinance, the laws, and the commandments he wrote for you. Do not fear other gods. Do not forget the covenant that I made with you. Do not fear other gods, but fear the Lord your God. And he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but continued practicing their former customs. These nations feared the Lord, but also served their idols. Their children and grandchildren continue doing as their fathers did until today. In contrast, after the return from Babylon, the Jews who settled in, in Judah retained the desire for pure and, and a loyal people of God. And we see that in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. I'm just going to read three verses from that. Ezra 9, 1 to 3. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. So we see there's a difference between the northern kingdom, how they reacted after um, their overthrow in Judah when they were returned from their exile. So why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? First, they had betrayed the faith of the fathers of the nation of Israel. Second, they had intermarried with members of pagan nations after the fall of the northern kingdom. Third, during the second century BC, they aided the Syrian monarchs in wars that occurred between Syria and the southern kingdom. Fourth, they had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and did not recognize the temple in Jerusalem. They acknowledged no sacred book except for the Pentateuch. Additionally, by around 100 B.C., they had developed their own version of the Pentateuch, which had differences from the one adopted under Judaism. The Jews contemptuously called the Samaritans Kuthites or Kuthians, after one of the peoples that the Assyrians had settled there. And Jewish rabbis said, let no man eat of the bread of the Cuthians, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. One more issue that must be considered in this passage, and pertained to women only. There was a rabbinical decree that all Samaritan women were in a state of perpetual menstruation. Because of this decree, all Samaritan women were considered to be continuously unclean, unapproachable, and unacceptable by God. Now we may think that's kind of funny that they would make this decree that Samaritan women were constantly having their menstrual period. 
But remember that there was no New Testament. They were still under Old Testament law, the Levitical law. Leviticus 15.19 says, When a woman has a discharge and it consists of blood from her body, she will be unclean because of her menstruation for seven days. Everyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Effectively, this meant the entire nation of Samaria, or the Samaritan people, were unclean continuously. Think of the impact this would have on dealings between the Samaritans and the Jews. Just think of verse 9, where it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Then there's a Samaritan view on the temple in Jerusalem. As I mentioned, the Samaritans only followed the Pentateuch and even had their own version. They believed the place of worship was found in Deuteronomy 12, 5-7. Instead, you must turn to the place of Yahweh your God, turn to the place Yahweh your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. For you are to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tents and personal contributions, your vow offerings and freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. You will eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your household in everything you do because the Lord your God has blessed you. We think back to Abraham. He built the first in a series of altars in his journeys at Shechem when he arrived in the Promised Land. It was here that Moses read the law to the Hebrew nation. It was a location from which the blessings and curses were announced. The Samaritans built their altar there because they believed it was the highest mountain in the world. The Samaritans believed this was the primary location to worship God and not the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a story of, a, of Rabbi Yochanan passing through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem to pray. He passed by Mount Gerizim. A Samaritan saw him and asked him, Where are you going? I'm going to Jerusalem to pray, he said. The Samaritan answered, Would it not be better for you to pray in this holy mountain, Mount Gerizim, than in that accursed house? So when we think of all the issues that stood between the Jews and the Samaritans, the history that was steeped in this place, the hatred between the two people, it's like all these bricks that are being put in a wall of separation between Jews and Samaritans. And here we see Jesus with the twelve coming into this area. And he goes and he sits down. And he's tired and he's thirsty. And the disciples go into town to buy food. And the belief is that this well was about a half mile from the town where the woman came from. So it's very likely that he sees the woman approaching the well. And she comes up and she starts to draw water. And Jesus, with four simple words, detonates the wall that separates Jews and Samaritans. Give me a drink. The normal route to go from the southern area of Judea to Galilee was to either go up the coastal road or go across the Jordan to the east, go north and cross back into Galilee. The shortest route was to go right through Samaria, and it effectively cut the journey in half. That's what Jesus did. From this passage, we clearly see the human side of Jesus. He was tired and thirsty. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man and experienced the same physical hardships that we encounter in our lives.
the sixth hour and there are different interpretations on this depends on whether you use a Jewish time system or the Roman time system using a Roman method would make it either six in the morning or six at night the Jewish mode would make it noon from the context of the passage it makes much more sense that this encounter took place at noon it would make it the hottest part of the day it was normal for water to be drawn early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cooler and if the case here was that this was 6 p.m. it's very likely you would have had many women drawing water not just the one but it raises another interesting point if this woman was drawing water at noon not the normal time of morning or evening why was she doing it then from the passage itself we can draw a conclusion it appears that even among her own people the Samaritans who were shunned by the Jews that she was shunned by fellow Samaritans most likely because of the moral implications of multiple husbands or partners maybe she was known as a homewrecker in her town we don't know give me a drink to a Jew this would have been an amazing story here was a son of God tired and weary and thirsty here was the holiest of men listening with understanding to a sorry story from the Samaritan woman here was Jesus breaking through the barriers of nationality and orthodox Jewish custom here is the beginning of the universality of the gospel here is God so loving the world not in theory but in action wells were often places of encounters in the Bible consider Genesis 24 11 he made the camels kneel beside a well of water outside the town of evening this was a time when the woman went out to draw water or Genesis 29 2-12 the story of Jacob there were also places of divine encounter Genesis 16:7. the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur this unnamed woman was about as low as you could get on the Jewish social scale a morally destitute half-breed Samaritan woman why would any self-respecting Jewish man ever consider talking with her however Jew Jesus was no ordinary Jewish man he spoke to her as God spoke to Hagar as Abraham's servant spoke to Rebecca she's been treated as a person we don't know for certain scripture doesn't say either way but there may have been much more to this conversation than what is recorded here in John's gospel when we consider that the well itself was about a half mile from the town by most accounts and Jesus sent his disciples in to get food that's a pretty long period of time for them to walk gather food and get back and also at the end of John chapter 21 verse 25 where John says and there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one I suppose not even the world self could contain the books that would be written 
So I'm not saying that there is more, but there's very likely more to this conversation than what's recorded here. And Jesus, either by his divine nature, knew about her background, or in the conversation, it came out. Consider that this woman was an outcast. And it appears that even the other women did not want to associate with her. Yet here Jesus is engaging her in conversation. And it's quite possible that because for the first time in a long time, somebody was treating her as somebody of worth and dignity, that she poured out her heart to Jesus. We know for certain that what she found here is someone treating her with kindness and respect instead of critical superiority. And the narrative shows us much about the character of Jesus, the reality of his humanity. John's gospel stresses the deity of Jesus more than any other gospel, yet also stresses his humanity to the full. He shows us a Jesus for whom life required effort, one who was also tired, yet had to go on. Shows the warmth of his sympathy. Think of what would have happened if she had met an ordinary religious teacher at the well. Either she would have avoided them or she would have fled in embarrassment. But it seemed natural to talk to Jesus. She met someone who was a friend and not a critic. She met someone who understood and didn't condemn. We see Jesus as a breaker of barriers. In the long introduction that I presented, I discussed all the historical, cultural, and societal barriers that existed between the Jews and Samaritans. Even to this day, in a strict Jewish household, if a son or daughter marries a Gentile, they conduct a funeral service for them. Such a person is dead in the eyes of Orthodox Judaism. And this was a woman. A rabbi would have never talked to her, ever. This woman was not uneducated in the divide between Jews and Samaritans. You see that from verse 9. She understands. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And it's very likely that Jesus didn't even have anything to drink with. The disciples were likely carrying any items they had brought. This meant that Jesus' lips would have had to touch something that this nasty, dirty Samaritan woman was holding. And Jesus offers living water. John's gospel is filled with double-level language that shows how people misunderstood his message. His teaching was rooted in Old Testament perspectives on God's dealing with his people. Isaiah 1.16 Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil. This is not talking about physical cleansing. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you without money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed a double evil. 
They have abandoned me the fountain of living water and dug cisterns for for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Zechariah 14.8 On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. Jesus is speaking to the woman on a spiritual level and she is understanding on a physical level. To a Jew, living water was running water. It was a water of a stream running fresh as opposed to the stagnant water of a cistern or a pool. To a Jew, living, running or living water from a stream was always the better choice. And her question is, where is a stream of living water? Almost all of us are blessed by having access to clean water whenever we need it. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world, especially in arid regions. In the desert, a well could be the difference between life and death. And this is what Jesus is telling her. He was the key to living water and eternal life. And the woman keeps trying to shift the conversation to distract Jesus from his aim of sharing the truth with her. She asks, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? The patriarch Jacob was an ancestor revered by both the Jews and the Samaritans. The woman is saying that Jesus is speaking blasphemy. Jacob, our great ancestor, had dug a well to get water for his family and livestock. Yet you are saying that you can get fresh running water? Are you wiser and more powerful than Jacob? If you drink from my water, you will never be thirsty. Again, the woman takes it literally. When she says, give me this water so I won't be thirsty, and come here to draw water, she's still thinking on the physical level and not the spiritual level. But Jesus is is making a messianic claim by stating this. Isaiah 49.10, They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them. For the compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs of water. Psalm 36, 9, For with you is life's fountain. Revelation 22, 1, Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. In Jeremiah 17, 13, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. There's a fundamental truth here. The human heart thirsts for something only Jesus can provide. Jesus then tells her, go call your husband and come back here. Here Jesus cuts to the root of the woman's problem. She has to face herself in the looseness, immorality, and total inadequacy of her life. Jewish tradition permitted three husbands, considered disease or accidents or warfare at that time but she was well past that threshold. Christianity has two revelations, one of God and one of ourselves. We can never truly see ourselves until we see ourselves in the presence of Christ. And just as this woman was shocked by what Jesus said, all of us should be shocked when we see ourselves in the presence of Christ. Christianity begins with a sense of sin. Finally, she speaks the truth. I don't have a husband. 
and Jesus acknowledges her truthfulness. For this woman to gain access to the living water, she needed to face the truth about her sinful life. And although the truth had come out about her having no husband, she still cannot accept the, completely accept the reality of her sinful life and once again tries to deflect the conversation by calling Jesus a prophet. She is most likely referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. And she also tries to deflect the conversation by referring to the proper place of worship. I previously mentioned that the Samaritans only followed the Pentateuch, but they had also made some modifications to their version. They thought that it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. They thought it was there that Melchizedek had appeared to Abraham, that it was there that Moses had first made an altar and sacrifice to God when the people entered the Promised Land, although Deuteronomy 27.4 says it's Mount Ebel. The Samaritans had altered Scripture to glorify Mount Gerizim, and this woman was raised to regard Mount Gerizim as the most sacred spot in the world, and it despised Jerusalem. By this point, she understands her brokenness and is not arguing about the merits of the temple on Mount Gerizim or the temple in Jerusalem. All she wants to know is, where can I find God? This is an important point for us to consider in this discussion. We should never argue about the right place of worship or the right denomination. We can lose people that way. The point isn't winning arguments, but introducing people to God. Jesus' methodology is very instructive. He turns a conversation away from the place of worship to the nature of worship. The Samaritans rejected all the messages of the prophets and the devotion of the Psalms. They had an abbreviated religion because they had an abbreviated Bible. The rabbis had always charged the Samaritans with superstitious worship of God or false worship. And there are three faults with false worship. False worship is selective. Think about people who cherry-pick verses, verses of Scripture for their own use. When I was going through seminary, one of the video lectures I remember clearly, the professor had been a pastor at a church, and one day after service, a woman came up to him and said, well, Paul said, put off the old man, put on the new. And she was using that to justify divorcing her husband and getting remarried. True story. Pretty extreme, but we can cherry-pick verses if we're not careful. False worship is ignorant worship. Not only, what, not only do we know what we believe, but we need to know why we believe it. And false worship is superstitious worship. If I don't do it, something bad is going to happen to me. Jesus' response tells her that God is not confined to a place. God is present everywhere, 
and true worship happens in spirit. The spirit is the highest part of our being. It outlasts the physical. True worship is when each of us, through the spirit, is in friendship and intimacy with God, not in a place or through ritual or liturgy, but when the spirit, the immortal invisible part of us, meets and speaks with God, who is immortal and invisible. She knows Messiah is coming. This could be interpreted as a statement of fact, or one last attempt to divert the conversation, or a combination of both. But Jesus removes all doubt by declaring that he is Messiah, and he is the source of the living water. The ultimate truth is finally declared in this conversation. Verse 27, the disciples are returning. They're shocked that Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, but they don't question him. We don't know why she left the water jar. It could be because she was in such haste to get back to her town, or maybe because she knew she was going to return. Regardless, she left her water jar. And the end of this conversation is a microcosm of the Christian conversion experience. First, she was compelled to face herself and admit who she was, that she was a sinner. She was amazed at the ability of Jesus to pierce her innermost being and bring out the truth. Her first instinct was to share her discovery. Christian life is based on two pillars, discovery and communication. And the desire to share what was revealed overcame her feelings of shame for her life. Verses 39 to 42, that the Samaritans would ask Jesus, a Jewish rabbi in their eyes, to stay with them, attest to the level of confidence that Jesus had earned, but also to their belief that Jesus was the promised Messiah. This is kind of a, these verses are kind of a summary of how the gospel spreads. There's the introduction. The woman introduced Christ to the people of her town. Romans 10:14. But how can they call on him? They have not believed in him. And how can they believe in? How can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? It is our privilege and responsibility to bring others to Christ. Second, there's a closer intimacy and increasing knowledge. Once the Samaritans had been introduced to Christ, they sought his company to learn and know him better. And then there is discovery and surrender. This really is the Savior of the world. The Greek expression used only here in John's Gospel and once in 1 John. So what can we apply from this passage to our lives? First, what bricks are in your wall? I have three main ones. Has anybody ever seen The Truth Project by Focus on the Family? Some. Okay. So, Truth Project is really good. You have R.C. Sproul was in it, Ravi Zacharias, and you had some secular universalist priestess, whatever. Um, and you had an individual called Flash, and he was a tattoo artist. So one of my bricks is if I see somebody covered with tattoos... I have a hard time approaching them to talk to them. I, I understand that. I know that. There's a funny story. My wife is going to be mortified as I relay this one. But we were dating before I proposed to her, and we had been at, uh, it's called Youngson Family Park, 
in, outside of Seoul. It no longer exists there. It's a museum. It was built over it. And we're sitting there, and I said, I have a deep, dark secret to reveal. And I rolled up my sleeve, and I have a tattoo. Honest, I have one. She started to hyperventilate. And I'm thinking, I need, to, I need to dial emergency services. And in Korea, it's 119, not 911. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm like, Chong, it's like I'm the same person that I am now that I rolled up my sleeve than I was before I rolled it up. But what I didn't fully appreciate is that in Korean culture, in Japan also, there's only one type of person that has a tattoo, and that's gangsters. So here, through our dating time... I, you know, she's thinking, oh, this wonderful, kind, handsome man that still has hair is all of a sudden a gangster. Obviously, we have overcome that brick. Um, a true story. The other one from the Truth Project was, and I can't remember his name, but picture somebody who's going fishing, and they're walking with their fishing rod in their tackle box, and they fall down the stairs, and their tackle box opens up, and all their hooks and lures go in their face. You know, like multiple ones, brows and nose and lips and all that. That's another one of my bricks. I know that. I understand it. Um, you know, I don't even like getting shots or IVs. I don't understand why you put, like, multiple stuff because you don't get any benefit from it, but regardless. Um, you know, in, in our fleshly eyes, we see this. Like, for me, when I see somebody covered with tattoos... For somebody with all kinds of body piercings, and it's it's like ah, it's like an offense to me. But when Jesus sees them, what does he see? He sees a beautiful baby who's lost and needs to be found. And I need to tear down those bricks in my life. Is there anybody from South Africa, Australia, New Zealand in here? Okay, so my third brick is cricket. Is like that that's even a sport I don't understand. I was hoping that somebody would be like offended. I could say, ah, I, I discovered one of your bricks for you. It's like you don't like people who don't like cricket. But I, you laugh, so I can't use that example. You know, even a game of chess goes faster than a cricket match. I, don't, I just don't understand that. The second lesson is that we don't chase rabbit trails when we're sharing the gospel. Throughout this conversation, we see the woman trying to deflect Jesus from sharing the truth and getting her to realize her sinfulness. We need to stay on point. Don't get distracted from the truth when you share. And third is never miss an opportunity to share. Jesus was tired and thirsty. Yet he used his thirst as a way to start a conversation. It would have been easy for him to say, give me a drink and leave me alone. But he didn't. Jesus met her where she was at. He treated her with respect and as a person who had value and brought her where she needed to be. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.